Michael, are you celebrating anything special today? Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners. That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious and it looks as good as it tastes. Thanks to the iconic Japanese artist, Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle. Kusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grande Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicquot, who took over the production of Maison Clicquot Champagne back in 1805 after her husband died. It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Veuve Clicquot. Happy Saturday. It is May 15th, 2021, and you are with us right here at Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome to the show. Wow, that has such a sense of urgency in your voice. I wanted to mimic it. (laughs) Well, Michael, I was rushing to get up here to record because you and I just had the world's longest lunch. It was also the most delightful lunch, but it was long. It was long. I blame the Bronzino. It took too long, but hashtag bougie problems. (laughs) <laughs> we are, we're running a little behind schedule today, but that means we're just going to digest this information and get it all to you in due fashion. Yes. Well, it was lovely to see you and have lunch. It was. It was a nice little return to a bit of normalcy. It's one of those perfect spring days and we had lunch with four of our, co- well, there were five of us in total. And I think that's the biggest group of airmail staffers that we've had together in one place since March of 2020. It might be the biggest group of people I've had together. But yes, it's, I'm not sure it's a quorum of people for airmail, but it's, you're right. It's the biggest staff get together I've been a part of in 18 months, right? Mm-hmm. And it was great to see everyone. And we finally got a pretty good table, I think, at Via Carota. We've had good tables all along, haven't we? We've had, I mean, look, we've had good tables all along, but we were able to make a reservation today. I think that's due to Graydon. Thanks, GC. But, you know, it was busy. We saw lots of people. Char- the character, Michael, the characters are alive and well in the streets of New York. Uh, yeah, no comment. I, um, but I guess it's, it's good. I mean, you come for the characters, right? And, you know, the characters, if they, if they hadn't returned like uh, Swallows to Capistrano, you know, we would be worried for the, for the, at least we know the tapestry of the city is, is re-knitting itself, right? Yeah, certainly. I think a lot of people have been very bored at home and they're using this as an, as an opportunity and as a moment to get back out there. But Michael, have you noticed that there's this thing on the streets? It's like a type of mass confusion. Like no one really knows. Are you supposed to be wearing it? When do you take it off? Do you wear it on the subway? Do you wear it on the street? Do you wear it in the elevator? There's also the mask social pressure, right? Because I think especially in New York and, and our early being hit early by it and everyone was very concerned about masks. And then uh, regrettably, I think the, the politicization of mask wearing. And now, even though you're vaxxed and even though the authorities from Fauci on down say you don't really need to wear a mask outside, you're so used to walking past people on the street over the last 18 months and seeing them without a mask and thinking, oh, they're anti, they're COVID deniers, right? And of course now, even though you, it's safe to walk without a mask, you still feel this social pressure to wear a mask, right? Yeah. Celebrities must be clinging to this mask wearing practice for dear life because this has granted them a degree of anonymity that they have likely never had before. Well, I, I for one have enjoyed not wearing masks quite as, as often as I was before. The biggest bummer was when I, I run in Central Park in the morning and wearing a mask to run was really unpleasant. 
Yeah, it was like wearing a saran wrap around your mouth, right? Yeah, you're just inhaling the thing. It's it's like you've got like a case of cotton mouth the entire time. It's just like, oh, it, it, it's almost enough to make me give up exercise. But then I'm going to come and have, you know, have Via Corota for lunch with you and order the Cacio Pepe and, you know, maybe a glass of wine. And, you know, I've got to just try to keep it together, Michael. Got to Got to keep things in order. Yeah, I think you do a pretty good job of keeping things in order, dear. I'm doing my best. All right. Well, by the time we're done with this podcast, I guarantee you, I will no longer be feeling the effects of that glass of Verdicchio. I'm 100% on it, Michael, and I'm ready to talk about this issue of airmail. Well, what do we got this week? Well, where shall we begin? Well, first of all, let's start with the music scene. The view from here, Michael. Did you read this story? (laughs) Trey question. (laughs) Wow. Live grenade rolled in. Yeah, I read view from here. Yes, I did. And what's it about? It's a good piece this week by Stephen Murphy, which sort of looks back, you know, one thing I think many people have missed over the last four years was kind of, you know, there was, there was, shall we say, a silence out of the White House in terms of supporting the arts and being arts friendly. And whatever your political stripe, I think that's really just a fact. You know, I mean, most presidents, and you don't need to be JFK inviting Pablo Casals to the to do a recital, but most presidents from in the last 40, 50 years have enjoyed having musicians in the White House. You know, Jimmy Carter was deeply connected to musicians, you know, had everyone from Willie Nelson to Greg Allman to Bob Dylan stop by. Ronald Reagan, a little bit different, much more about the sort of Mel Torme, Perry Como, Tammy Wynette, Frank Sinatra world, Bill Clinton, and then you go all the way up to Barack Obama with Bruce Springsteen. But, you know, really the only musicians in the White House under Trump were, were you know, the, the sort of like Ted Nugent's of the world. Nothing against Ted Nugent. I had cat scratch fever when I was in high school. <laughs> I was all for it. I was all for the Motor City Madman, but there really wasn't much support. They never went to the Kennedy Center Honors. The Kennedy Center Honors are back um, this year on May 17th. Uh, Joan Baez will be honored. Garth Brooks, Midori, the violinist. Dick Van Dyke, one of my favorites in WL. It looks as sort of like how they've the Bidens are sort of supporters of the arts again and bringing music back into the White House. Perfect. One fun fact from this piece, Michael, was at JFK's inaugural. Let's just go over the lineup here. Harry Belafonte, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, and Frank Sinatra. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, before Frank Sinatra turned on him, but that's a different story. Well, we'll get into that at some point. I'm sure we've got a new episode every week, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, well, Michael, this is a perfect segue into our next story because we have a piece on one of my favorite contemporary musicians, St. Vincent, also known as Annie Clark. You mean the same St. Vincent who's back with her 70s theme new album, Daddy's Home? Indeedy. I love St. Vincent, Michael, for so many reasons. Let's just start back 20 years ago, Boston. St. Vincent went to Berklee School of Music in Boston for a short period of time. One of my friends was a student there, so I was hearing about her when she was still just Annie Clark, this savant, maverick, what have it. And she's one of the last people I saw perform live before the pandemic. She did a great acoustic set at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And she was wearing this black Saint Laurent tuxedo jacket and these sheer tights, like very sheer silk stockings and these great black pointed toe high heels that were sky high. And it was just one of the coolest outfits I've ever seen. And she has that performance gene in her that makes her such a compelling artist on all sorts of levels. That was pretty incredible. But she... She has this incredible song, Michael, that was really my lockdown anthem. And it's a song called New York. And if you've never heard it, just listen to it. For all of our New York lovers out there, um, it got, it soldiered me through 
dark months. Here's an important question. Is she more Gen Z or millennial? She's millennial. I would say she's a millennial. I mean, she's either like, yeah, she's actually one of like, she's probably one of the oldest millennials, but she has universal appeal. So then that's my transition into this. Our, the other story, another story we have this week about chuggies, uh, is was a term that was coined about six or seven, eight years ago uh, by a high school kid in California. Who, um, uh, but it only recently sort of started trending on TikTok in posts that mock millennial tastes and habits. And it's, you know, sort of in its broadest definition, it's used to describe someone who is out of date or trying too hard. So kind of started with mocking uh, millennials for their side parts and their skinny jeans. So we have a piece this week about, you know, are you chuggy or not chuggy? All right. So do you want to know in a short list of what's considered chuggy? Of course. Houseplants, avocado toast, sex in the city. Growing your own tomatoes, karaoke, brunch, complaining about renting slash dating apps slash the cost of your therapist, posting Instagram pictures of dogs, babies, Negronis, or log cabins, inspirational quotes, sourdough, saying you're addicted to podcasts, beards, and craft beer, and egg freezing. Egg freezing meaning reproductive eggs, not eggs by the dozen. Well, with the exception of a couple of those, Michael, those are mostly good things. Like, do I really have to hate myself now for growing my own tomatoes? No. What about people who post a lot of inspirational quotes? That scene is chuji too. Okay, yeah, I'm not, I don't do the inspirational quotes because I've rarely found quotes to be that inspiring. Except I do have a good quote from Graydon. This is one I want on a t-shirt today. Ready? I'm ready. Well, the wine's not very good, but that's a good thing because then you'll drink less of it. Now that's a quote I can get behind. That's true. It's just, it's going to keep you from, when you have really good wine, it just, it just goes down too easily, right? I agree. It's, it's one of the most genius maxims I've heard in a long time. Whenever you repeat something from Graydon, it's always good to say it's a genius thing. <laughs> it's, it's just a genius thing. It's one of the most genius things I've heard in a long time, boss. Yeah. <laughs> He's very true. It's very astute. Very astute. You got a point there, boss. Yeah. <laughs> we should put that on a t-shirt, boss. Put yeah. that put on a t-shirt. By the way, I do want to make morning meeting t-shirts. And if any of our listeners want one, just DM us or email the general airmail inbox. And perhaps we'll get enough support behind us that we can actually make these. Okay. All right. Next story. What should we discuss? There's a piece we're running in the diary this week by George Kalajarakis about Jeff Bezos. You know, he's got this gigantic super yacht that he brought onto the water a few years ago. Well, it turns out now that there's in Rotterdam in the shipyard there for the last few months or so, there's been a, sh a three-mast ship under construction and no one knew who it was for because of course, like the, those registries are anonymous until a certain point, up until it's just been known as Y721 was its sort of its registry. Well, it turns out now that the identity of the owner of Y721 Super Yacht is, is Jeff Bezos. But see, wow, this is how wealthy he is now. This super yacht is simply a chase boat for the other yacht, right? It costs, it's expected to cost $500 million to build, according to Bloomberg, which broke the story, which would be at least twice the sum he paid in 2013 for the previous yacht. But it's also, it's longer than any ship that's currently in the, in the, in the Royal Navy. And it's got a helicopter pad on it. So his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez, who's a qualified pilot, can land at sea. So there you go. The oceans are rising, but you got to keep buying super yachts. This is a sign that he has too much money and we need to stop spending so much of ours on Amazon. We need to start raising money for Bill Gates' divorce, I think is what we're doing. Seriously. Michael, speaking of the rich and privileged, we have a great piece in the issue about Marlboro. Am I saying that correctly? Marlboro? If you're not, 
Uh, you're going to get a note from Graydon, okay? I know. Okay, well, let's just hope that that's it. It could be Marlborough, either Marlborough or Marlborough. If it's here in America, we pronounce it like the red hard pack, Marlborough. <laughs> Fine, Marlborough. Marlborough being the public school in the UK, which is a private school in the US, that was attended by none other than Kate Middleton and Emerald Fennell. And the writer of this piece, whose name is Laura Pullman. Michael, tell us about this place. Okay, you've left out one other person who also attended this school. Pippa? Pippa. Keep going. All right, you want me to tell you? Ghislaine Maxwell. Ooh, yeah, she's the secret shame of alumni. Yes. They don't They don't put that one out in the press materials, Michael. It's a school most recently in the news for Emerald Fennell, who won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for a Promising Young Woman. But it's a British boarding school, which is, there is a group of very prominent women, as we've mentioned, who come out of there, including Samantha Cameron and her sister, as well as um, Georgina Chapman, the ex-wife of Harvey Weinstein. And there's something in the water there. Yeah, apparently many of the pupils had double-barreled surnames and homes with long drives, writes Laura. Some even had famous parents and their 18th birthday parties were photographed for Tatler magazine. Brian Ferry's sons went there. So did Sting's daughter, Mickey Sumner. And of course, Princess Eugenie, Prince Andrew's younger daughter, also attended. It was kind of a sporty place. Field hockey, that kind of thing. A lot like you and I grew up, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, field hockey. Field hockey, people with triple hyphenated names. Watching our social lives unfold in the pages of Tatler, pretty much. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely fun to know about these places. And it's become even more of a thing after Emerald Fennell won her Oscar for Promising Young Woman, a film I really liked. I don't think you liked, or did you like? No, I thought it was great. No, I'm team I'm team Carrie Mulligan as well. And also I get a, I get a cameo from McLovin. So how awesome was that? McLovin cameo was good. All right, Michael, we're going to do a digest of short little things that you can find in the issue because uh, I don't have the brain power to properly explain them. All right, we have a great piece by our dear friend Alexander Marshall. Is that a Birkin on the blockchain? Why are luxury brands messing around in the NFT sandbox? Michael, I edited this story and I still don't understand it. Alex, I'm sorry. I think you understand. No, it's about NFTs, which are non-fungible... Tokens! Non-fungible tokens, which you've seen in sort of like taking the art world over the last few months and people bidding on things that works about that you can only access digitally and only own them. But now what's crazy is luxury fashion houses in Milan and Paris and other places are sort of trying to jump into this thing. I think because many of them, as Alex Marshall points out, kind of feel they may have missed the e-commerce boat when that broke and now oh, maybe we should maybe we should try and get on this. So, so the most, I think the goofiest example of this so far is Gucci for $12, you can get an NFT of Gucci sneakers, which means you can own a pair, quote unquote, of Gucci sneakers that you can't wear for $12. So that's where we at. If you want to believe we're at the top of the market, maybe this is a sign that we're at the top of the market. Michael, do you think you and I could release ourselves as NFTs? Would anyone buy us for like 0.25 Dogecoin? You might be able to, but I mean, I would be less than an NFT than probably a NFC. No effing chance that anyone would want that as a non-fungible token. <laughs> oh, oh, hearty har har. I'm, I'm free like my friend Bonnie, who, if she's listening to this, would say like, you know, Michael, enough with the dad humor, but uh, come on, he's just trying to do something funny there, okay? I love it. It worked for me. Well, Michael, I don't really know what else we can talk about in this issue. You know what I want to talk about? We can talk about, I just saw, is Sam Kashner's piece on Josephine Baker. So this is a terrific piece by our man, Sam Kashner, who the kind of reason we're running the piece this week is in 1951, the NAACP declared May 20th Josephine Baker Day. Now, 
Who knew, right? But Sam took it as the, the opportunity to go back and look at the life of Josephine Baker. You know, recently sort of people have been re-examining Billie Holiday, another black singer of note in the 20th century. But, you know, he goes back and looks at Josephine Baker and her life. You know, she's born in 1906, grew up poor in East St. Louis, was married at 13 and then again at 15. She, as many of you know, went to Paris and created a sensation with the Josephine Baker craze when she performed the La Danse Sauvage, which was a Charleston clad only in bracelets, a beaded necklace and a skirt, and sort of like came to epitomize the Roaring Twenties. She lived there for many years through the Second World War when the Germans and Nazis invaded. She aided the resistance. She had been, was married at the time to uh, a French Jew. She said, I mean, the, the word extraordinary keeps being applied to her and for, for right reasons. She adopted 12 children from different races and ethnicities, which she called her rainbow tribe. And she lived out of the U.S. for many years. It wasn't until she came back, Robert Kennedy brought her back to the U.S. in 1963 to speak at the March on Washington. She appeared on stage in her free French uniform from World War II with her Legion d'Honneur medal. And it was her way of sort of bringing two strands of the resistance, as she thought, together. And she then stopped performing. She had sort of, her star had kind of dimmed, but she was then befriended by Princess Grace of Monaco, and they had been friends for a while. And Princess Grace helped find her a place to live at a sort of former convent uh, for her and her children. And then in April of 75, at the age of 68, Josephine Baker, she went back to performing. And her final triumph took place at the Bobino Theater, which is a small venue in Montparnasse. And she was doing a retrospective of song and dance from her career and her storied life from St. Louis to Paris. And it received raves. Le Figaro said, you know, she'd, for the second time in 50 years, she has conquered Paris. But her triumph was kind of short-lived. She did 14 performances and then suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. And then in April 12, 1975, with Princess Grace kneeling beside her hospital bed, she died. So it's a terrific piece by Sam, just one of those transformative figures of pop culture, which who, who, who also ends up influencing the larger culture. And uh, can't praise it enough. As usual, a terrific piece of writing by Sam Kashner. Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot? Funny you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicquot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines. She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicquot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence, and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne. And like Madame Clicquot, Yoyoy Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy. To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles. And as for the wine itself? It expresses Veuve Clicquot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicquot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grande Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence. Madame Clicquot and Yoyo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration. All right, Michael. Well, it's the television event of the second week in May, the debut of Halston. (laughs) 
a new scripted series on Netflix. And we have a great review in the issue by none other than James Wolcott. Jim, welcome to Morning Meeting. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So first and foremost, did you like the show? Yes, I loved it. I think they hit the right tone right at the outset and they keep it going. They focus on, they emphasize what they want to emphasize and they don't overload you. And they also don't melodramatize it. It's very easy to do that, to play it up for the schmaltz and the decadence. And uh, it's got a nice sort of very, it has a very funny tone to it uh, that works. I love how the first image we see of Halston is is him as a little boy in Indiana, I think it was. And he's making a hat for his mother uh, as a way of cheering her up after she's just gotten into an altercation with her husband. What did you make of? Well, I was actually happy they didn't do too many flashbacks because I thought, oh, are we going to get all of that backstory of the sensitive young boy? And they set it up and then pop, you're in New York. And, uh, you know, for me, it's like New York is where I want to be as as a viewer. So it's like, yeah, take us there immediately. You don't want to be in Indiana the whole time, Jim? Well, I don't want to be in someone's childhood that much. As, As important as it is, it's like when I read biographies of some, you know, famous writer or actor or whatever, I want to get to the point where they're already starting to make it. I think it's a brilliant thing what you do in your piece this week is you, you know, you locate Halston and for people who don't know him, this is a great opportunity to read Jim's review and then watch the show and discover him. But I think as you say, he's born Roy Halston Fenwick. But he was, as you say, he was the classic American case of self-reinvention. That product of the post-war boom that gave us Andy Warhol, as well as a a guy like uh, Don Draper and Madman. And as you say, he pared away the inessentials until he achieved the pure expression of his willful ambition and persona. And then he comes to post-war Manhattan, which, as you say, is the perfect launchpad for such enigmas, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think and so then we're as you say like we're just off and running once he gets to Manhattan. Yeah, he starts to establish himself. He establishes his persona. It takes a while. His first flash of fame, nationwide fame, was he d- designed the pillbox hat for Jacqueline Kennedy. But five years, you know, it jumps. And then we're into 1968 and women aren't wearing hats anymore. So he has to redo, he has to reinvent himself. And he does. I mean, he first with the the ultra suede, but he was also a genius at cutting. I mean, he, and you see it in the documentaries about him. He could just take a piece of fabric and then not even measuring, he would just take the scissors and do a shape and then just drape it over the woman and it was perfect. But he also had incredible marketing skills and self-marketing skills. Um, you know, the, the whole image, um, which changes as years go on, but the black turtleneck, the black outfit, the cigarette that was with the holder that was always raised high. So he was instantly recognizable in a way that it was very much of that period. He was very much of the pop period. Jim, let's talk about the acting in this series. Fantastic performance from you and McGregor, I thought. And then, of course, I'm blanking on the name of the actress who plays Liza Minnelli, but I thought she was wonderful, too. I think it's Krista Rodriguez. I don't want to say Crystal, but I think it's Krista Rodriguez with a K. She, no, she's really good, and she gets she gets better as it goes along because at first, you're always aware of like, oh, does this person look enough like Liza? Do they move enough like Liza? But as it goes on, you just totally believe her in the role. No, it's an incredibly great cast. Kelly Bishop is Eleanor Lambert. No, there's so many good people in it. The actor who plays Joe Eula is, is t- 
terrific because if you've ever seen documentaries about Halston and seen Joe Eula, I mean, the actor gets them totally. Yeah, it's um, David P2. David P2, yes. There's a lot of really good Broadway talent in this thing. One of the things... Jim, that I was I was encouraged to see you note this in your write-up this week. As you say, uncharacteristically for a Ryan Murphy production, this one you know, under-sensationalizes the kind of lurid excesses of Halston's life. And because I'm used to watching Murphy's productions, and it just is, I always feel like it's turned to 12. It's not even turned to 11. But it seems as though he, they realized if you just sort of let the thing become the thing, it's already going to be, that excess is going to come through, right? Yeah, I think they kept a real nice bounce to it. They didn't, because it'd be very easy to do the orgies or whatever went on, you know, that they talk about, to do it as if it were the last days of Rome, you know. Even the Studio 54 thing, I'm not saying it's mild because you're aware of their people are having sex up in the balcony and, and all that but it's not it's not piled on and they also focus on things that are really really sort of interesting to what makes someone an artist i mean the third episode is all about the pursuit of the perfect halston fragrance and also the perfect shaped bottle that becomes this obsessive quest and when they get the bottle it's like no we can't manufacture that the stopper goes in at an angle we can't you know and there's this whole thing and that was interesting because that showed his the perfectionism the quest for the for you know shape and that kind of iconic design and i was glad we were getting that rather than oh here he is in the back of the limo doing a line of coke i mean we get that but it's almost telegraphed as if to say okay this is what was going going on. You're right, because as you point out again in your piece, it's like it makes room, you know, you, you by rather than sensationalizing, you get to see, as you said, that creative talent, which fuels this meteoric rise. And we all know that this descent is going to happen, right? And by means of his own creation and, uh, you know, whether it's the lack of hubris, which sort of, you know, all great artists, if they're not careful, kind of flip over to if they're not sort of watching but i'm going to sign a deal with jc pennies because i want to bring fashion to the masses you know and people forget i mean we talk about this was only 40 you know years ago but i mean halston it's, it's great to see this mini series out because he's a talent and those are not just times that kind of need to need to be seen again right but one of the ironies is that, in a sense, Halston was ahead of his time, too far ahead of his time, because he was the one person who was actually victimized by licensing and branding because he didn't work out a good enough deal for himself. The later designers all learned how to make that work, make all the design labels, the branding work. At a different time, he might have figured it out and not felt so overwhelmed. And then, I mean, then he loses everything because he doesn't even get the use of his own name that's taken away from him yeah in many ways he was a victim of his own ambition but it's interesting jim you know they've tried to revive holston over the years with varying degrees of success often not very much of it but i remember when michael you probably do too when harvey weinstein was one of the backers like you know in 2007, 2008, something like that, when they tried to revive it. And then it ended up on QVC, the home shopping network, one of the home shopping networks. And what I love about this is it kind of restores Halston to his former glory in a way, because his name has been so diluted and mass marketed over the years. It really reminds you of why he was such a talent and why he was so successful to begin with. No, I totally think it does. Yeah. You guys keep mentioning, actually, you said like his name, his name, his name. And again, we forget. And as you point out, Jim, as well, like he was 
so ahead of his time in terms of like, I'm going to use my name, I'm going to license it everywhere. You can draw a line from what he was trying to do to what a Kardashian is doing or a Kanye West, just like, I'm going to do all these things, right? Multi-hyphenate. But of course, his, I would argue the downfall was when he makes the deal with Norton Simon, the multi-global, multinational, he sells his name, right? He's, he, and he does that thing, which designers have always feared, you know, what happened to Helmut Lang in the 2000s, where you sell your name, you know, along yourself. And there's, there's, there's this scene in one of the documentaries where he meets with the guy who becomes the, the head of Norton Simon. And he keeps recounting the story about like when he first meets with, with Halsey, he says, well, Roy, what are you going to do now? And he turns to the camera and says, I kept calling him Roy because I kept saying to him, you don't understand, Roy, you don't get it. You don't own your name anymore. And it was just like, talk about a nail to the head if you're Halston, right? There's a documentary in which they show, first of all, two things. Afterwards, they basically just swept up all the samples from the floor, all the samples that were in there, the sample things that Halster did, and they just got rid of them, just dumped them. I yeah, mean, none of, that stuff is, none of that stuff is in, like, the, the costume and still, all that stuff is gone. Yeah, it's all gone. It's a very sad story. But the series, to its credit, doesn't make it overly lachrymose, and, you know, it has a rather sweet lyrical ending to it. And it's a lot of fun to watch now too, Jim, you know, at this moment in time when we've all been locked down for a year and it, it's it's both nostalgic and a reminder of what we love about being out in the world. And very few people were out in the world the way that Halston was. Oh, he was, no, and he was out all the time. I mean, one of the things that the series doesn't, it doesn't show that you see more of the documentaries was he would never go out alone. He had this, this entourage, this troop of Halstonettes. Well, Jim, if you ever want to give it a try, Michael and I are happy to be your Wolcottettes. Yeah, but so I never go anywhere. Even pre-lockdown, I never go anywhere. He was savvy enough to understand that's the image, that's the marketing, that's what's, as he, one of those documentaries you point out, like, I mean, he knew it was all about the photograph the next day, whatever ran in, in Women's Wear Daily or in the Daily News. He's like, it's the image. I think we all learned a few lessons from watching this series, and I'm going to do a couple things differently, I'll tell you. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, red more red dresses, more sparkle, and the matching luggage is key. In fact, I might, might order some right now. I think that's the way to go. That's a very airmail thing. All right, Jim, have a good one. You See you too. later. All right, Michael. Well, before we sign off, do you have anything at all, anything to recommend? I do have something that I've really been enchanted by. And there's a, there's a, there's a guy, he's in, his name is Sam Lee, and he is a singer based in the UK. He's probably better known there. And he has published a book recently. It's called The Nightingale, uh, Notes on a Songbird. And it's mesmerizing, lyrical, bittersweet, sort of gorgeous ode to a nightingale, sort of almost like a nightingale song. And what is terrific about Lee, and you can you should look him up on YouTube as well, where he's got his own channel, is he has been doing duets with nightingales out in out in nature. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the nightingale is sort of unrivaled because it's uh, it, it only the male sings and it sings at night and its song is uh, so sophisticated that it del it delivers fifteen hundred different sounds and can arrange them in more than. 250 musical phrases. And if you've ever seen it, you can also look this up on online. About 100 years ago, there was a cellist named Beatrice Harrison who famously 
demonstrated that nightingales will duet with human beings. And she went out and the BBC recorded these live broadcasts of her playing, playing the cello. And during World War II, they became this kind of very, almost like uh, they got a lot of people through the blitz and everything. So anyway, but it's it's sad now because uh, nightingales, which migrate every year, and this is their season in in the UK, the sort of April to May when they return and they, they, they build their nests and sing their songs. They're going towards extinction, perhaps. But Lee is is dedicated to sort of recording songs with them, and um, he's been doing them with people like uh, uh, Isabel Waller-Bridge, Phoebe's sister, and uh, other musicians. They're beautiful. They're a sort of powerful reminder of our connection to nature, as is this book. It's a real sort of, uh, as I say, mesmerizing, beautiful, almost like the Nightingale song. So I encourage you all to read it and to take a look at his videos on YouTube. Wow, Michael, that's a great one. While we're at it, I'm just going to tack on to this. If you haven't reread John Keats's Ode to a Nightingale recently, please go back and reread it. I mean, that to me, it's one of the all-time greatest poems ever. And I think about it all the time. Uh, it's a nice compliment to this, this project that you're talking about. I won't recite it for you, although I'm tempted. Well, maybe, you know who I bet could re- will, will eventually memorize it and, and will recite it? Who? Charlie. Oh my God! Yes, the kid does love a poem. It's true. And I'm gonna, and we're gonna have him on, and we're gonna do, we're gonna do poetry recitation. You know. All right. You know what? He'd love it. Actually, he'd probably learn the poem if we promised to bring him on the show. Any kid yeah. who wants to recite a poem, we'll put you on morning meeting. We'd love it. Anyone, yeah. please. All right, Michael. On that note, will you please read us out? I'd be delighted to. But first, thank you so much to our sponsor, Vav Clicquot. And we will be raising a glass right this very minute, as soon as we get off this podcast. Thank you to our partner for this episode, Vav Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit vavclicquot.com. V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T.com. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly or at Ashley Claire Baker or at Michael underscore Haney. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.